Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Let's meet the people who will be wading through politics dirty water this week. Roz Taylor is a writer and commentator currently working on her first book on the future of trust. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. Uh, Liz Truss has said that she won't need an ethics advisor. Um, Why on earth would she say that, given the damage done by sleaze scandals this past year? Yeah, this is just extraordinary because it seems to me this is a very easy win for Liz Truss. She can even decide who it's going to be. It's not as if some independent committee appoints the ethics advisor. The prime minister appoints the ethics advisor to advise them on the ministerial code. She could adopt some yes man or woman if she wishes to. And just don't do any bad ethics. Yeah, I know. Easy. But, you know, she she explained that, that there are already too many independent bodies and rules and regulations in this country. And that was why she wouldn't. And that she'd always done the right thing thing. So that's okay then. That's fine because, you know, because obviously if she just said, actually, I'm really bad at ethics... Um, then you might not trust her. But if she always does the right thing, then then that's fine. Yeah, I mean, it's just extraordinary that this the person whose only legitimacy as a leader comes from, what, 160,000-odd Tory party members is able to go and say, oh, I don't need any more. I, I will do the right thing. It's yeah. just amazing. Uh, and they are terrible people. It has to be said, those 160,000 Tory <laughs> members. Hello to commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Dorian. Labour plans, because I always have to point out that when Labour does have policies, because people say Labour doesn't have any. But here's one. It plans to link the minimum wage to the cost of living and scrap the lower rates for under 23s. Um, Now, the TUC is pushing for a much more ambitious increase from £9.50 to £15, citing the cost of living crisis. That figure's been around for a while. Why the obsession with that? I mean, that is a that's a more than fifty percent rise. It's a big it's a big leap. Why the TUC going for that? I mean, it's a nice round figure, and they derive it from something quasi scientific. Um, it's important to say that the TUC is not pushing for fifteen pounds today, um, sure. as has been widely reported. Right. They're they're asking for a roadmap to fifteen pounds. I suspect what they're trying to do is get Labour to commit to say going up to £15 over a parliament, for instance. I I don't think that's unreasonable, given inflation. Um, The other thing they're asking is for the uprating to happen this October rather than next April, than it would... Uh, when it would normally happen, which, again, I think is very, very reasonable considering inflation. I mean, I think the right to push from their point of view for a higher minimum wage, I don't think they should be a living wage. It's a nonsense. A minimum wage should be a living wage. I never understood that dichotomy. But I'm not sure they're, they're doing it in the right way. I think Labour's plan will get them to 15 quid sooner, considering where inflation is right now. Linking minimum wage to inflation, I think it's a it's a much more long term sound policy than what it is at the moment, which is a percentage of average wages. At times like this, with high inflation, wages not keeping up, all that does is basically enhance that gap between what it should be and what what it is. So, 
I, I think they're missing a trick, actually, by not jumping on board the Labour plan to link it to inflation. I think it'll get to 15 quid a lot quicker. That's the thing, I suppose, because the TUC has every right to. I mean, it should. I always try to separate out what unions should be doing and what Labour should be doing. Yeah. And of course, the union should be pushing harder. But it seems that perhaps they should have shown, a, might want to show a bit more enthusiasm for this Labour plan, which has been out for like a week. And it's good. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's, all right. <laughs> you know. it's a start. Our guest this week was last with us during the Romaniac days, which ended so well. It's director of the Think Tank UK in a Changing Europe, Anand Menon. Welcome back to the show, Anand. Lovely to be with you. Well, to be with you virtually. Uh, the summer of strikes continues with criminal barristers in England and Wales walking away from the courtroom indefinitely. What's their grievance? Well, I mean, simply put, the grievance is they're not being paid enough, that legal aid fees have been slashed, and that particularly junior barristers uh, are very, very underpaid. And like with so much else in this country, this isn't something that you can understand with reference simply to the cost of living crisis or simply to the last couple of years. This is a decade of systematic structural underfunding of key services that has pared them down to the bone and just and means that, that, that professions like this completely lack any resilience when faced with a crisis like the current cost of living crisis. And what will this mean I mean, when you talk about barristers leaving out, I mean, that, does that mean no trials at all? I mean, one of the things it means is that my cousin keeps ringing me and asking if I want to go for a beer because he's not working at the moment because he's a barrister. But I think it, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, th- I think it means uh, the vast majority of criminal cases are not going ahead, yes. Yeah, if you're relying basically on a public defender, it's not going to happen while they're on strike. Yeah. There was an amazing stat by the Victims Commissioner a couple of days ago. One in eight criminal barristers left the profession in the last year. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's extraordinary. But equally, you know, you could dig up figures that are eye-watering for people leaving the for doctors leaving the NHS and going to Canada or New Zealand or Australia. In all these uh, professions, we have just been, over the last few years, leeching people elsewhere because of chronic underfunding and conditions. This week on the show, Michael Gove says that Liz Truss is on a holiday from reality. As Gove leaves the stage, for now at least, what is the fate of levelling up under a Truss premiership? Plus, millions of litres of raw sewage are being pumped into the sea, partly due to cuts made by Truss when she was Environment Secretary. Is this a good argument for renationalising water and not giving Liz Truss jobs? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, why is air travel such a mess? First, a quick word from Roz. It's just a few weeks to go before our final Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022. It's on Wednesday, the 14th of September, and tickets are selling fast. Ian, Dorian, Alex and I will review the first week of the Liz Trust Descendancy, and tickets are available now at leicestersquaretheatre.com. There's a special four tickets for the price of three deal, too. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you get a special discount as well. Search Patreon Oh God What Now to find out how to support us and keep us keeping on. We'll see you there. First this week, the insufferable Tory leadership race is almost over. Announcing his departure from frontline politics, Michael Gove called Liz Truss's tax cut plans a holiday from reality. Tory grandee Ken Clark labelled them nonsense after Dominic Raab damned them as electoral suicide. Party sources are saying she desperately needs to change tack and do something about the cost of living crisis or else the Tories are toast, which would of course be very sad. (laughs) 
Roz, is this really the end for Gove as a big beast? Do you think he'll quit Westminster and take a, a top job in journalism, his old job, or hang around for what could be a post-defeat free-for-all uh, in 2024? Well, you should never write off Michael Gove. He's a very clever, very astute, very pragmatic guy. And my hunch is that he's seen the writing on the wall. He's seen just how awful this autumn and this winter and probably next spring is going to be. And he doesn't want to be part of a doomed administration and effectively contaminated by it. He'd rather be part of the rebuild, whenever it comes, and trying to make the Tories electable again. And I think there's every chance that he'll be heavily involved in that. But for the moment, he's going to run a mile from this shit show. Well, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, it's quite hard to imagine why anybody would want to take a job uh, uh, under Liz Truss during this crisis. And yet uh, she was at uh, her country retreat last Sunday drawing up her list of cabinet members. So clearly there are a lot of people who want to join her. It's always risky saying anything nice about uh, conservatives on the podcast, but it's often said that Gove was an unusually competent and committed minister at DEFRA, education uh, and levelling up. When I spoke to six mayors for The Guardian recently, even Labour mayors thought that Gove took his levelling up job seriously and were quite excited uh, by his appointment relative to the last guy. Uh, what do you make of, of his performance? He was certainly competent by comparison with many of the other people who've occupied those cabinet roles. I mean, education, think of Gavin Williamson. I mean, But even, even so, he did take levelling up seriously because he knew how important it was. It's interesting that what was initially a very much mocked slogan, levelling up, people said, oh, God, what the hell does that mean? It doesn't even make any sense on its own terms, actually came to mean something to people. And they began to realise what they thought it meant. And they you know, thought it meant that parts of Britain that were poorer, that were not in London, would get more help. And they understood that quite well. And Gove understood that quite well. The trouble is that he partly because he didn't have much time, but also because so much of this stuff has to be done at the local level. You can't just do top-down Whitehall stuff. You can't really put your finger on anything much that he's achieved. I mean, at the moment, how can you level up when your first priority now is to stop people freezing and starving? There's not much scope for levelling up when you're in full crisis mode. I would question whether his record at education was quite as good as he thinks it was. He uh, certainly introduced a lot of reforms to the curriculum, many of which have done very little, I think, to improve standards and to school governance. Again, a lot of emphasis on free schools and opting out of local authority control. And I don't think, uh, according to the latest studies, that that has had any positive uh, impact at all on school standards. So I think his record there is not as great as he would like I mean, it to I mean, I disagree with a lot of his record on education. But I suppose what's striking is that he had real conviction, mm. not a conviction I agreed with. He had but an he, intellectual framework. He, yeah, he yeah. does. He did seem to actually take his job seriously, you he know, versus a, someone like Gavin Williamson, who just seemed to sort of yeah. float about. He had an ability to set out in a fluent way what he wanted to do. And that, of course, was honed when he was a journalist. And that is in this government and in the last two governments that we've seen pretty rare. Alex, one reason Gove is leaving uh, levelling up seems to be that Trust clearly doesn't care about it because uh, it involves spending money rather than cutting taxes. Is that project effectively over? In my view, the project never really got started, never really existed, to be honest. I think it was a way for government to make regions and local authorities compete against each other for funding that should be part of ordinary government spending. Want a new local swimming pool, apply to the levelling up fund, and we will judge it against some other area who wants a new bus route. 
I ne- I thought it was a very very smart way to play pork barrel politics. Actually, right. that when I last look at the figures. Um, that was a couple of months ago. The largest level of funding in the country had gone to Bromsgrove and central Bedfordshire, some of the wealthiest areas in England that include the constituencies of Sunak and Dorries, by complete coincidence. Well, so I, I don't. I I I thought it was illusory from the well, start. Well, I liked it when Sunak was caught boasting that he had redirected money well, from that was the precisely, north to Tunbridge. I mean, well, that was money that Labour was. Precisely that was levelling up. So, Arnon, can levelling up boast any real achievements uh, beyond a phrase which has stuck? We do have a shadow levelling up minister. People are generally in favour of the idea. But what what could you point to and go, there, we, there it is? No, I don't think it can. I mean, there's been some progress with sort of relatively insignificant sums in the levelling up fund and the towns fund. Though I agree absolutely with Alex that... Uh, there's an academic at uh, Royal Holloway called Chris Hanretti who's done some work on this and found a very, very curious and perhaps unsurprising correlation between Tory constituencies and cash from the, the town's fund. So, no, I don't think levelling up. But I hesitate to say this on your podcast. Levelling up was something that Brexit gave us. Uh, it was, in my view, one of the potential positives pull, pull that came it, out the, of this. Cut the connection. You can edit it. You can edit this later. All right? You can cut all this out and do what you want with it. But I mean, I think you know one of the things I hoped after 2016 was that the reaction, and particularly the reaction to the from the Conservatives to what happened in that referendum, was, albeit you know, belated by many decades, recognition of the fact that this country is blighted by high levels of regional inequality. And so we ended up with the debate first about the just about managing under Theresa May, who did nothing at all about it, and then with the debate about levelling up under Boris Johnson, who did marginally, though not much more. And I tend to agree that under Liz Trust, this is going to go even less well than it has gone to date. Though I do hope that some way is found to keep that debate open. One of my hopes of having someone like Michael Gove on the back benches, or even having Boris Johnson on the back benches, is that the slogan doesn't go away. Because actually... A lot of hopes have been raised now. And, a lot, and the other thing I would say that makes me wonder whether Liz Trust can afford to simply sweep this under the carpet is the Tories have a completely different electoral coalition now. And part of that electoral coalition will depend on them showing that they are still committed to something a little bit like levelling up. Alex, like Arnon says, like this was part of that, um, you know, that sort of post-29 sort of analysis that the Tories were going to recognise this new coalition mm. and, you know, do everything they can to hold on to the Red Wall. A constituency which now looks to be swinging back to Labour, uh, you know, in, in quite a big way. So far in the leadership contest, has Trust shown any sign of giving these voters anything? I mean, you could say that at the moment, Truss is speaking to a very particular constituency and it's when she stands on the steps of 10 Downing Street that she will make her pitch to the country at large. So maybe it's wrong to judge her from what's going on now. There's another part of my brain that thinks, how many times have we sat in this studio and fantasized that somehow power was going to pressurize a a small person into a bigger one. And it just never fucking happens. So we've seen it with Cameron, we've seen it with May, we've seen it with Johnson. She will stand on those steps. She will say she's governing for everyone. She will say no one will be left behind. And then the action won't come. And the action won't come for two simple reasons. One, those areas need cold, hard cash. 
leveling up needs investment. So if she's planning to cut taxes mm. at a time of stagnation, that's not going to happen. And number two, and very important, is that the Tory party has been largely purged of anyone with the intellectual capacity to conceive and implement policy. And so that's what we're stuck with for at least a couple of years. I do think it's quite funny that obviously the, the, the left have been raging about Starmer saying things to the membership and then changing tack uh, once he'd won. And now we're all going desperately hoping, I suppose, <laughs> yeah, I that mean, Truss is saying things to the members that she's going to backtrack on in, in office. But she won't. They never do. They get worse. They don't get better. That's that's our experience from the last few years, not just domestically. I mean, we hoped that Trump would become a sort of semi-human being mm. by you know, having the office of president vested in him, and he just got worse, and that's what people do. I remember when people had high hopes for Putin. I mean, come on. <laughs> Optimism is a hell of a drug. <laughs> Rods, Starmer's pledge to freeze energy prices helped boost Labour's poll lead to 10 points in Politico's polar polls. YouGov has it at a giddy 15 points, which is the highest since 2013. Uh, why has this leadership contest been so bad for the Tories? I think people who gave the Tories the benefit of the doubt for a little while because it was clear that Johnson was reaching the end of his tenure and they wanted to wait and see are now seeing the person who is going to be in charge, who, as we know, is very, very likely to be Liz Truss. If Sunak has gone down badly with voters, which he certainly seems to in focus groups, so has Truss. I think I think she does slightly better when you look when you look at the kind of focus groups that more in common has been running, for example. She comes across as slightly more relatable than Sunak. Nonetheless, they are not impressed and she has not managed to get rid of the robotic quality of delivery that is hampering her ability <laughs> to actually reach out to voters. I can't see that changing. I think Labour, Labour was slow to the urgency of this. I think uh, Keir Starmer, it perhaps wasn't his fault entirely, but he had a holiday in Mallorca at exactly the wrong time. And ideally, I think he would have come home from that holiday and said, I am breaking short my holiday mm. because it is so very, very urgent that we do this now. But he didn't. He stayed on holiday and waited till he came back. Um, that was a bit of a misstep, but they are beginning to catch up now because they have a plan. And the Tories, visibly, if they have a plan, are not sharing it with us yet. And for people who are worrying about how they will pay their bills in the next few months, that is really important. They want to know what the government will do. And they know that the government is not telling them. And that is causing a lot of anger, I think. Well, I mean, I'm not entirely convinced by this, but Truss could yet enjoy a polling honeymoon and some Tories will no doubt want her to capitalise on this by calling an early election. After weeks of zombie government, would, would voters tolerate another campaign? No. They would be absolutely hammered, I think, if they went to the polls immediately. The conditions just aren't there to go to the polls. Trust would be subject to a hell of a lot more scrutiny than she's getting now. And frankly, she's not doing very well under the scrutiny that she's had so far. And Theresa May had a year. Yeah. Even if, even if she threw money at energy bills, even if she arrived at number 10 and came out and said, right, you don't have to worry about this anymore. I'm capping it. Uh, I'm stealing Labour's policy. She won't say that, but I'm capping the energy bills. She'd still have the strikes to contend with. She'd still have the state of the NHS. She'd still have the feeling of a country that is frankly broken to contend with. And I can't see that she could win an election. 
Alex, do you think that, that Truss's Britannia Unchained fan club would rather ram through some favourite policies in the next two years than prioritise winning the next election? I say this because people often have a theory about that this is a good election to lose or, you know, get some stuff done while the going's good and accept you're going to lose. But I can't think of any occasion when a political party has just sort of let an election go and let power go. Um. There is an in-between way, isn't there? There is a sort of pragmatism that we probably won't win the next election. And I think that's where Tories are at the moment. There is a lot of opinion pieces in places like the Telegraph, the Daily Mail, the Spectator, that are taking this view that uh, there should be a sort of smash and grab for the next 10 years and let someone else clear the rabble out while um, they rebuild the Tory party. Interestingly, it's what happened in Greece during the financial crisis. Uh, People were absolutely fed up to the back teeth with the two establishment parties. Syriza got in, and three years later, the principal architect of the financial financial crisis, the centre-right party, was back in power, under new management with a new shop front, pretending that this all had nothing to do with them. I, I don't know that it's a conscious choice to let the next election go, but looking at the polls right, right now, there must be some planning for a what if. And I think the planning for a what if is to just ram through as much as they can with this 80-seat majority in the two years they have. And there must be some amongst those Tories, you think Steve Baker in High Wycombe or Dominic Raab, who are thinking even if the Tories manage to scrape home next time, they're almost certain to lose their seats. So there must be an incentive on the part of people like that to see their ideological agenda enshrined to some extent, because let's face it, as far as they're concerned, it hasn't been at all. Nothing more more scary than the idea of Steve Baker... Unchained. You know, on on a deadline. Yeah, Baker unchained. (laughs) With his uh, little weird chest medallion swinging. Um, Arnand... Truss seems to be appealing to almost half of Tory members who would like Johnson back. He's actually, in the last poll I saw, polling uh, about the same as Truss and Sunak put together. I mean, is there a danger here that she's going to be stuck as the sort of continuity candidate for a leader that the members love but the voters hate and that she's going to constantly be stuck? And as soon as she disowns anything Johnsonian, then he and, and his fans are going to cause trouble for her. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a leader that the leaders love, the voters hate, and the parliamentary party is profoundly divided over, to make it slightly worse. Uh, because, of course, the next step is to sort of, is to try and master that hideously divided parliamentary party. But yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say, and I imagine she would say as well, that if she were to choose the moment to enter Downing Street, this possibly might not be the, moment, the best moment to, to do so. Uh, one of the interesting questions for me is the degree to which her party in Parliament give us some kind of honeymoon, or whether or not they come out all guns blazing. Uh, you know, whether mm. whether the ERG immediately say, well, you know what you said about scrapping all that EU regulation, we don't care about the cost of living crisis, do that now. Uh, you haven't got long to do it. Or whether they say, actually, you know what, there's a crisis, she's a new Prime Minister, we'll give her the benefit of the doubt for a, for a small amount of time. So I can be a little negative about the Conservative Party. So I'm wondering, can you see a successful trust, a route to a successful trust premiership? When you said like, there seems to be a tension between what voters are crying out for and what a lot of Tory MPs and members, including the people who are backing her, um, want. Is there, is there a way of squaring that? 
Not that I can think of off the top of my head. It's very, very hard to see how this government succeeds. And if by succeeding, you mean ultimately getting a majority at the next election. And it was interesting what you were talking about earlier about an, a, an early election. Uh, I don't think an early election will happen because I think the psychology of calling an election when you're 10 points behind uh, in the polls uh, is tricky. I mean, you can see the case for doing it. The case for doing it is you might have a bounce. The economy might be even worse in two years' time. There's every prospect yeah. that things aren't going to be any better. Labour are a bit short of cash. And actually, you can announce a couple of policies that sound good and go to the people before they realise that they haven't worked. I'm of that school of thought, as Dorian knows, what the, that the she will call a quick one. I just find it really hard to imagine that meeting in Downing Street where they say, we're 10 points behind, let's go now. I think it would be like the meeting between Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid <laughs> at the very end of that movie. <laughs> well, that ended well. Now, let's answer a digital dispatch from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, Michelle T says, Finnish PM Sanna Marin immediately took a drug test after various misogynists and pro-Russians attacked her for going out dancing. It called their bluff, but is that a good thing? Should politicians be obliged to take drug tests or is it none of our business? Um, Roz. It's, it's, uh, this is a world where the PM won't even appoint an ethics advisor. And here we are asking whether, whether people should up have regular, regular uh, drugs test. I mean, I'm kind of mystified by the attention given to this story. It's a very silly season. I mean, it's because this is an, an attractive woman in her mid-30s who clearly has fun. And, you know, we can't allow that to happen without extraordinary scrutiny of it. But, you know, drugs test shouldn't be a substitute for a slightly more nuanced judgment about whether a person is behaving ethically or not. It's it's not, you know, it's not your go-to thing that tells you whether someone is fit to rule. And it, it makes no sense in the context of alcohol being entirely legal. Well, I found it a bit weird because it's like you can, you don't need drugs to have fun. I don't want to be square about it. But um, <laughs> just the, the idea that people were unhappy about the partying and the immediate thing was just like, is she on drugs? It's like, well, she's she's the sitting prime minister. She's probably not. Maybe they it didn't think, really cross my mind. Maybe they think that the only way a politician could have fun, given the weight of their responsibilities, is if they were on drugs. So maybe that's the logic involved. A spokesperson for the PM said, "Big fish, little fish, can't be <laughs> <laughs> but, but what sort of friend sticks that on Instagram? I mean, that's the bit that got me. Is like. You've got to be stupid to think that there isn't going to be some political blow. But just keep your phone in your pocket and have a good... I mean, just what evening of your life. I think it's done her good, actually, in the polls. I think the polls show that she's had a bump because of this. So, yeah, so... But not a bump of cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) We must clarify that. (laughs) Yeah, but there was another one about a party at her residence where there was a Miss Finland... Yeah. Miss Finland or whatever with her, with with her, uh, I didn't see the picture, so I don't know some kind of chest situation. Um, <laughs> and again, it was like just don't put it out there. It's like have you know just have a nice time. Yeah, but you maybe, don't have to put it out there uh, on social maybe media. That actually shows her to be a real person, and it does her good with the voters that already like her with her core. I, I mean, I don't look the. The the focus should be on the quality of the decision make, yeah. making. That's the bottom line. I mean, I'm not saying that everyone should go to the Monday morning meeting off their faces, but, <laughs> you know, there there is a universe in which a politician that knows actually how to 
have a little bit of fun on a Friday night is a calmer, better, more stable decision maker on a Monday morning, however they choose to do that. Her slogan should be, have it large and join NATO. <laughs> play hard. <laughs> Work play, hard, play, play hard. hard. Join NATO hard. <laughs> Big you know. fish, little fish. <laughs> Remember, if you've got questions for our panel, sign up as a Patreon backer and you can send them in. Just search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast to find out how. Now, it's been found that untreated sewage is polluting every beach on the south coast from Brighton to Hastings, while most British rivers are on red alert. The Environment Agency has also found that sewage monitors on British beaches are faulty, meaning people could be swimming in sewage without even realising it. Uh, so I don't swim in the sea. You swim in the sea, don't you, Roz? Uh, well, I'd I try to. I mean, it's getting it's getting increasingly difficult. I try to go to the, the coast. The bloody trains are cancelled. I go get there and it's sewage outfalls. I mean, like yeah. I said, broken Britain. <laughs> <laughs> it is indeed. Um, does this boost the argument for nationalising utilities such as water? Alex, the Twitter version of uh, this story, or at least part of this story, is that Tory MPs voted last October to dump sewage in the sea. But the crucial vote seems to come down to just seven amended words in a Lord's lines. Amendment to the... Sorry. sorry, seven amended lines in a Lord's Amendment to the Environment Bill. So what exactly did they vote for? Like, is this the thing that we should be genuinely angry about? And I do not blame, obviously, uh, opposition parties for exploiting it. Strap in for some scintillating poo talk. Um, so the first point is that by the time the Environment Bill came to Parliament, this was already an issue, OK? Yeah. Raw sewage was discharged more than 400,000 times in England in 2020. The issue flared up again in September 2021 because of the shortage of treatment chemicals. I will leave the reasons to the listeners' imaginations. Um, then Amendment 45 from the Lords proposed a number of things, including, crucially, and I will read the actual words here, a duty on water firms to take reasonable steps to ensure untreated sewage is not discharged. When it came to the Commons, the amendment passed, but with seven lines taken out by the government, namely that duty on water companies. The Lords had a second go in the next round, at which point the government stripped the duty again, but replaced it with a sort of compromise and I quote, a progressive reduction in the adverse impact of discharges. In other words, do your best to ensure the whole country doesn't stink of shit. But they're allowed to dump some sewage of, into of, the sea in emergency. Well, listen, if the system is overflowing, if it doesn't go out one way, it'll come up your pipes, basically. Um, so this is not about what they did, uh, but what they failed to do. So did... Tory MPs vote for shit to be pumped into rivers? No. Did they do all they could to stop it? Right. Yeah, also, yeah. no. Yeah. Sure. Uh, the regulator Offwatt has been accused of giving water companies a license to leak. This is uh, what James Bond calls going to the toilet. Yeah. Uh, by allowing bosses to rack up bonuses while they continue polluting and fail to build new infrastructure such as pipelines and reservoirs. Off what the fuck is going on? <laughs> I can see that being the title of a very niche podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, look, Offward are ultimately bound by the teeth government gives them to enforce stuff, and the funding government gives, gives them to put stuff right. They don't have the funding and they don't have the teeth. And it's really facetious to um, say that it's Offwood's fault when 
a, le- a piece of legislation just went through Parliament, mm. they had the chance to beef this up and chose not to. Ross, let's play a quick round of the blame game. Um, what role do the cuts at the Environment Agency under Liz Truss's stewardship play? Uh, £24 million was taken from the budget for environmental protection and surveillance, which includes sewage monitoring, from 2014 to 2017, most of which time she was in charge. Yeah, I mean, uh, her team say she switched the funds to flood protection, which seemed like a more urgent thing at the time. What we've actually seen, of course, is that when you have heavy rain caused by the climate emergency, then you have to have more sewage discharges because the sewage systems get overwhelmed. So it's all part of the same problem. Um, But since 2016, we do know that raw sewage discharge has more than doubled. So it would seem that cutting those funds was not a very good idea. (laughs) And as you said, one in eight of the sewage monitors aren't even working at the moment. So we can't even be entirely sure which beaches are (laughs) suffering most from this problem. And we won't know until next year, incidentally, because they only measure it on last year's data. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, And is there a Brexit dimension? Are water companies behaving worse because they're free from EU regulations? Because this problem obviously does go back quite a way. Yeah, it does. And British beaches were even worse in the 1980s. I mean, Brighton and Blackpool beaches were notoriously filthy. And the EU took the UK to court over this. And the UK tried to argue that it wasn't a problem because these weren't bathing beaches. People didn't actually... Well, not swim now at they're the... not, because of all the shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But people didn't want to swim at these beaches. So the issue of being covered in shit was not, was not a problem. But they lost that case. And as a result, there was a massive cleanup of beaches in the 2000s. And it, well, not just in Britain, Belgium also had a massive problem with filthy beaches. Other EU countries did as well. <laughs> you filthy beaches. Yes. There's, a really interesting, there's a really interesting story behind this, which was when the beaches directive first came in, to collect the data, the EU asked member states to send in uh, data on all beaches. And beaches were defined as a strip of coastal water with so many people sort of swimming or whatever. So the Brits had a wheeze to escape this, which is that they spent sent their inspectors out at sort of four o'clock on a Saturday morning in November. Uh, <laughs> as, as a result of which, our initial numbers, we declared fewer beaches than landlocked Luxembourg. Uh, 27. At which, point, at which point the European turned around and said, we've had a look at a map. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them have beach in the name. <laughs> That's the giveaway. Um, Arnand, a poll in the Express has support for renationalising water at 91%. Now, Express polls are not super reliable, but still. um, (laughs) The newspaper's labelling it taking back control of our water. As I said, now I've seen it all. You lot lot approvingly citing Express polls. I mean, my God. Shame on you all. I'm into the vibe more than the methodology, I'm going to say. Is there a populist Tory route to nationalisation? No, I don't think so, because I think ideology and the party in Parliament gets in the way. And I mean, I'm not sure nationalisation is is necessary. There's something very, very badly wrong with how we do water. There's something Mm. very badly wrong with the regulation. There's something very underpowered about the regulator. There's something very unhealthy about the relationship between the companies and the state, because they're monopoly providers of a service basically on behalf of the state, uh, and they're not effectively regulated. Now, Dieter Helm, who is the sort of the energy guru, uh, has come up with an interesting suggestion, which is that you put these contracts out to tender, as they're basically, if you want to do it in regions, you say, okay, 
will get a series of firms to bid for the contract to provide water in, say, the Thames Valley region. And you do it on things like value for money, commitment to infrastructure and things like this. But this sort of excuse to write free checks for shareholders and let all the risks be bought by taxpayers is just it's the most perfectly absurd situation you could possibly hope to invent. Well, I want to come back to you on the more general issue of nationalisation. But while we're talking specifically about water, Alex, you've been doing some, you have been doing some homework on this. Water was privatised in 1989, towards the end of the Thatcher years. Um, who owns our water companies now um, and is making are making quite a lot of money out of it? Okay, so you you can have a sort of checklist that makes everything look awful. Um, I'll give you some examples. 71% of uh, England's nine privatised water companies are owned by organisations from overseas. So a Malaysian corporation owns all of Wessex water. A multinational registered in the Cayman Islands run by Hong Kong's richest person owns 80% of Northumbrian water. Chunk of Yorkshire water by Deutsche Asset Management. 40% of Southern water by J.P. Morgan. The point, however, is not who owns them. This is what happens in private markets. They get fragmented and they get sold off. The point is that nobody should own them. As a former regulator, this is a horrific market to look at. They should never have been privatised. I don't want to get too economisty in the talk, but it has a it has a flat demand curve. Okay, like if the price goes seriously up, it ain't going to dent demand for water that much. Mm. It will dent it a tiny bit, but there's still an essential level that will still be used. To place that into profit making hands was just the fucking stupidest thing this country ever did. Can I just say um, on that, just yeah. quickly, I think there was this was a, a sort of Thatcherite miscalculation. Part of the rationale of this idea of a share-owning democracy was assumption that people would hang on to their shares. And, of course, people didn't. People cashed them in as quickly as they humanly could for an enormous profit, <laughs> which has led us to a situation not of a share-owning democracy, but of you know, private equity firms the world over now owning our water companies, which I don't think yeah. was the original intention at mm. all. Ditto with housing stock. Yeah. Conservatives always accuse the left of being sclerotic in its thinking that public uh, sector good, private sector bad. But they are equally sclerotic mm. in their thinking by thinking that public sector is always good. It's not. Well, this is, this is the thing, because... If you look at the various sectors that might or might not be renationalized, Arnand, um, you could make arguments for some but not others. Yeah. Um, and someone else could make an argument, you know, for different ones. Nationalization is such a sacred cow for the left and such so taboo for the right. Does that make it impossible ever to discuss it as a pragmatic solution and go, yes, we, we, we are going to renationalize, except, of course, in real emergencies? Uh, and so it's very hard for a party, for either party, to just go, yeah, that, but not that. I think to an extent, yes, because it will be expensive. It will be in the short term. And of course, there's nothing more short term than politics these days. I mean, if you're thinking through an electoral cycle, renationalizing a major public utility is not going to bear the fruits you think it's going to do quickly enough for you to sort of show mm. them at the next election. So I think risk-averse politicians will be leery of it. That being said, and I take Alex's point about natural monopolies, absolutely. There are some sectors where uh, privatisation makes a lot more sense than others. But in those where you have privatisation and you think you can make it work, we need to figure out 
smarter ways of regulating. We have a mm. government that claims that one of the things about Brexit is we're so much better at regulating than the European Union. And yet we have a government simultaneously that seems to hate regulation and regulators and not put enough thought into it. And I think this is one of the real failings of this particular administration is believe in the market by all means. But everyone knows that if you have an effective functioning free market, it needs to be effectively regulated by regulators with teeth. And yet they're failing on that score abjectly. Yeah. Uh, in 2019, uh, Labour promised to renationalise water, energy, rail and mail, um, which the CBI estimated would cost about £200 billion, although they uh, they said they couldn't show their workings because it might upset some of their members. Um, Labour's currently talking about none of the above. Now, Rachel Reeves's whole, you know, her, her only priority really is uh, you know, re-establishing Labour's credibility on the economy and reputation for fiscal responsibility. Is that going too far and mean that some of these you know, very popular uh, policies, rail, I think, may, might be the most popular there, it just can't even be discussed because it might seem as if Labour's going to spunk everyone's money at the wall. I think Labour talking about not nationalising is the same as Tories talking about scrapping Brexit, uh, EU regulations. It's catnip. It's, it's electoral catnip. And for Labour, the not talking about nationalisation is the I am not Jeremy Corbyn card, which is absolutely fundamental because there's always that lingering doubt in Labour circles that if we start talking about vast amounts of public expenditure, we will be skewered by the Tory electoral machine next time round. Personally, I think the danger of that outweighs any populist benefits of a path back towards nationalisation. Because I think the British people are perfectly capable of simultaneously thinking, we want X to be nationalised again. And, oh my God, Labour and nationalising it is the same old Labour, we're going to be bankrupt soon under them. I think they can hold those two mm. thoughts in their head at the same time. <laughs> How depressing. Uh, Roz, finally, um, like I said, you don't have to re-nationalise everything. Um, Good. To you, you don't. Not today. <laughs> you don't have to do any of it personally. But um, by tomorrow morning, morning. Uh, which sectors have the strongest case? Do you think? Um, like I said, imagine if Labour didn't think there was an electoral risk. What should they be thinking about nationalising? I think there's a powerful case for water, as Alex and Arnon have both said. There's no element of competition in the water market. There's no market justification apart from profits for shareholders that can be made for, for that. So that, that would be my number one. I would not re-nationalise mail. I'm not sure people are that bothered about that. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm getting a particularly bad service from uh, from Royal Mail at the moment. Mm. Um, energy and railways. I mean, you've, you've got to ask yourself, would, would re-rationalisation solve the most pressing problems we have? And I don't think it would in terms of the railways because the strikes, for example, is basically the government, uh, how much the train drivers and train staff can be offered. That wouldn't change under rationalisation at all. It's an ongoing problem. And I think you could, without renationalising, you could do a better job of encouraging companies, all the different infrastructure associated with the railways, to work better together, which they have been extremely bad at doing because artificial systems have been set up which encourage them to take money off each other in a very time-consuming and expensive way. Mm. And if we could get rid of those, which, to his credit, Grand Shapps has a little bit moved towards with his British Railways plan, that would be a, a great move. But I mean, also, we've, we've lost so much council housing, we're not going to get that back. What you could do is say to all the people who are reluctant, pissed off, 
buy-to-let landlords who are worried that their Airbnb is going down the spout because no one's going to be able to afford to go on holiday anymore soon, say to those people, right, we're going to create an organisation that will take, will effectively do the difficult bits of your job for you. We're not going to buy it off you. We're going to basically make it much, much easier for you to do all the hard stuff and deal with all the regulations that currently you complain about so loudly. And we are going to put that housing stock back and make it affordable. And there are ways of doing that. But we simply don't think about that because we've got this crazy dichotomy between nationalisation and not nationalisation. Well, yeah, because I'm quite open to, you know, to, 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 to the possibility of nationalisation in some of these industries. But it does seem to be like almost a, sometimes almost a left-wing version of, of I don't, I'm going to get in trouble. It's waving a wand, <laughs> a left-wing version of something like Brexit in that sense of like, this big change will make it fine. It's like, well, mm. of course, some of these nationalized when they, these industries are nationalized, they had problems. Mm. And so there's almost an idea that if you just make that one big decisive change, then everything's fine. But but as, as Arnon said, there was a better way of doing privatization. So a lot of the time it's, you know, it, it, it has to be done well and intelligently, and can, it's enormously complex, and it's not just about who owns what. Can I once more very quickly advocate for the for the mixed model? There are opportunities for introducing a state-owned but not state-backed, independently operated player in a lot of these sectors. You know, when an when an energy company goes bust and you take it over as a government, keep it. When another electricity company goes bust, instead of redistributing those customers to the big four or the big five, keep them in the state operate, you know, operate it independently, introduce a social tariff maybe for people on universal credit. That will stimulate competition in the market. That will keep the other players honest. And there are a lot of opportunities like that when a rail franchise fails. We took it over via an organization exactly like that, the Office of Rail, and we made it profitable and results improved. And then what did we do? We put it out on franchise again. Someone else took it over and two years later collapsed again. So we had to take it over again. I hesitate to say That's this, what needs to but, stop. I mean, what Alex is proposing on energy, he could also dress up and wrap in a bow as a benefit of Brexit because it strikes me that under EU state aid rules, you wouldn't have been able to do that as a member state. You would and they do. EDF the is... EDF is majority as as long as the as long as the the this player is not state funded it can be state owned but we don't have to be looking down the line at unloading those shares we can be owning it as a country the same way France owns EDF the same way Germany owns Deutsche Bahn Okay, I mean, I was just, what you were saying about things like social tests, sort of undercutting competitors with the backing of the state, which these companies would have, is a distortion of competition, surely. With the backing of the state? Yeah. It doesn't have to be with the backing of the state. A, a player can make a conscious decision to cross-fund a social okay. tariff, for instance. EDF could make that decision tomorrow. They could say, we're going to offer a slightly better tariff to our customers who are on a pay meter, you know, not able to pay by direct debit instead of incentivizing the people who are better off. That's an internal company decision. Okay. I, I just wonder sometimes, and a little skeptical of polling, not just in the Daily Express, um, but when, some, when an industry is nationalized 
is nationalized and not doing well and people want privatization and when it's privatized not doing well people want nationalization you know are they just voting and again i think of brexit for not this yeah but when it comes to nationalization there's a there's a hideous amount of moral hazard isn't there because you know let's say hypothetically you nationalize an industry and then you have again hypothetically a conservative government that starves it of resources over 10 years and it stops functioning well then people are going to want to privatize it so in that that's the sort of mm, mm. political uncertainty associated with nationalization that makes me very slightly leery about it and more in favor of effective regulation of a privatized model. I mean, sort of slightly one step along from Alex's model, I suppose, in that way, simply because politics is so unpredictable. And, you know, we we have a party that seems to like starving public services funds. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Uh, Anand, you're our guest. Uh, What's grabbed your attention? You see, I'm not sure I'll be allowed to get away with this, but the fact that Leeds are in a Champions League spot is something I'm not hearing enough about. From uh, <laughs> And I want this to be on the podcast. And that's it. Okay. Please. I'll allow it. Um, Roz. <laughs> A uh, bit of a downer this week. Sorry, not football related. Um, the FT did a fantastic piece this week uh, asking why methane levels are rising so fast. Basically, there's more and more methane uh, levels in the atmosphere. Scientists are trying to work out why. Quick answer is that wetlands in East Africa are releasing much more methane than we would have expected because they're getting wetter, not drier, and the wetter they get, the more methane they release. And it's a big, big problem because methane is a huge, it's a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. And as the Arctic melts, we're going to see even more of this because as the permafrost melts, the microbes that were formerly locked up get exposed to the water and air and they start eating more matter and they start releasing more methane. So this is very, very, very scary. I have to say, as an exercise in making me look like a superficial idiot, that was perfect. <laughs> that that no was one, amazing. No wasn't one it? could make we, you look like We like him, <laughs> We like him. That was a <laughs> methane beatdown. I feel suitably chastened now. <laughs> it's all just <laughs> hot air. <laughs> uh, Alex. <laughs> um, CEO, average CEO pay figures out this week. Um, they've gone up nearly 40% since 2020 from 2.5 million which was 79 times the average UK salary, to 3.4 million, which is 109 times the average UK salary. So they're going up both in absolute terms and in relation to what the average worker is paid. That, to me, is an indication of a dysfunction. Uh, Okay, so I've got a little bit of possibly good news. Yay! Uh, Okay, so in America... Is it that you're now CEO? (laughs) (laughs) I would... I'd be like a cool, groovy CEO, like Rishi Sunak. <laughs> Big fish, little fish. Yeah, come on, guys, ride a scooter around the office. Have a smoothie. Uh, so in America, the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision and the Inflation Reduction Act have fired up Democratic voters. Uh, Biden's approval rating is rising. Democrats are doing surprisingly well in special elections in various states. Um, now, normally the party in the White House takes a pasting in the midterms, especially when the economy is rocky. So there was lots of talk about a red wave. Um, but that sort of faded away, and the Democrats are now narrowly favoured to retain the Senate, partly thanks to the rancid quality of Trumpy celebrity uh, candidates uh, like Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, Herschel Walker in Georgia, and J.D. Vance in Ohio. So 
there's lots going on there. Uh, one showing that, that Trump's influence once again has the potential to harm the Republican Party as well as democracy and life on earth. Um, and that the Dobbs decision could turn out to be a sort of gigantic own goal for conservatives. I, I want you to describe to the listeners what hopeful eyes I'm looking at. I know, right? right now. I know, right? I'm just saying... I'm saying, considering it was basically like they're going to lose the House and the Senate, now they're favoured to retain the Senate and could even retain the House. And of course, that changes. That totally changes the calculation on the Republican side for the next presidential as well. I mean, that'd be a really, really right. big yeah. deal. Yeah. And that's the show. Thank you to Roz. Thank you. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Arnand Menon. Thank you very much. Pleasure to see you all. Same here. Don't forget our final live Leicester Square Theatre show of 2022 on Wednesday the 14th of September. Go to leicestersquaretheatre.com for tickets. Stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thank to some of our backers. Huge thanks and best wishes from me to Elizabeth Lawrence Kelly, Denise Robinson, Tippity Lawton, Charlie Covell, Paul Brown... Mark Thompson, Tony Langton, Daniel Eagles, Michael McCluskey and Andy Oldham. And hello and thank you from me to Stephen Alexander, Sabrina Ali, Margaret, Tony Lloyd, Joe Casey, Nicola Flynn, Sarah Podesta, Milan Wiedemann, Celine McClure and Owen Vallis. And thanks from me to Teresa Williams, Howard MHC, Owen Perry, Heleth Lloyd-Jones, Morali Surya, John Laking, Phil Smark... Bye Kashui, David Priestley and Ray Stacey. See you next time. Oh God, What Now is presented by Dorian Linsky with Alexandre and Ros Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn. The producers of Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronevich. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. Lead producer Jacob Jarvis. And Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Regular air travel is less pleasant than ever, but that's not a problem for the very rich. Hooray! Using flight tracking software, online sleuths have noticed that celebrities like Elon Musk and Taylor Swift are taking private flights equivalent to five stops on a train. Roz, I've just flown for the first time since 2019, and it was horrible. I don't want to do it again. Um, Are the airlines, do they have a stealth green plan to make us take fewer flights? (laughs) Because they're so unpleasant. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I also flew for the first time last week, uh, for the first time since 2019, and it was, yeah, also also not a great experience. This is really complicated because I feel quite ambivalent about it. Uh, I mean, I, on the one hand, you know, um, obviously private flights are in ex- in- inevitably a bad thing. You can't argue otherwise. And yet it does keep celebrities out of the airports and it keeps them from <laughs> clogging up. And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and see you next week. <laughs>